Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. You know, this is, this is almost an accidental series. It's kind of taken shape to, to be titled The Heart of Jesus. You know, we, we started out the week before. Was last week Easter? It was. Yeah. It was. Wow, my goodness, what a long week. Um, in a good way, I think. But so the week before Easter, Easter, and then today, I'm just really wanting to focus in on this idea of how Jesus feels about us. You know, so this whole idea, if you want to call it a series, kind of started out with this passage here, Roman, or, uh, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Say, I am that joy. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, Jesus didn't just fulfill a legal obligation to God to, to gain your salvation, right? Jesus didn't just come down because he felt sorry for you. Jesus didn't just die for you to pay the price and then want to live a relationship out with you where he's scrutinizing you. You know, I, I think it's, it's hard for us to recognize just how valuable we actually are to God, you know? And if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. Like, and I'll say this, and we're not throwing out the Old Testament, but we're just framing everything that's ever happened that we know about God through who Jesus represented God to be. I mean, there is the justice aspect of God. There's, the, there's all of the aspects of God, the wrath of God, all of that. I would say understand everything that you believe about God through who Jesus represented God to be. Are you with me? So like even the punishment of sin or the wrath of God or judgment or any of that kind of stuff, you have to understand it through Jesus. And so when you start thinking about those aspects of God, you look at what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But in terms of how God is treating you, how he's relating to you, the things that God does or does not do in your life, the way to best understand how God is treating you right now is not through circumstances. Amen. It's not through what has or has not happened to you based on what happens to you in this life. Are you with me? Like, understanding God through circumstances is like trying to read through broken, shattered glasses. It's just going to be fractured and broken. <clears throat> the world is broken. You can't understand the nature and the will of God by trying to interpret the circumstances in your life. The way to know God is to look at Jesus. Amen? He's the exact representation of the invisible God. God who you can't see took on flesh and lived out a life as a human to show us exactly who God is. You want to know who God is? Get to know Jesus. It sounds like a no-brainer, and you may be sitting there agreeing, but when something bad happens to you in your life, you know, uh, early loss happens or a bad diagnosis or job loss or failed relationships or, or whatever it might be, if you go to, well, I wonder what I did for God to allow this to happen in my life, 
then you're not couching that circumstance in your understanding of who Christ is, yeah. right? You look at Jesus, Jesus never put people in confusing situations. He never let disease stay on somebody to teach them a lesson. He never created a difficult, challenging situation to teach somebody a lesson. Right. He just didn't do that. But that's how most people think about God. You know, I, I, I have, um, you know, I enjoy the conversations that you guys share with me. It, Ruth, um, your mom, I know that they've got friends in town and they're visiting, but uh, Ruth, if you haven't met George and Ruth, make sure you meet them. They're awesome. But Ruth was telling me yesterday she was at uh, Home Depot and she was checking out and the guy, kind of an older man, was there. He's like, can I carry this out to your car? She's like, no, nah, I'm good. And he's like, you sure you don't need help? She's like, no, nah, I got it. And he's like, are you sure? I can't carry. So then she was like, well, this sounds like this guy really wants to help or maybe he wants to get out or something. So, so she goes ahead and lets him help her. She goes out to the parking lot, and then she just starts to talk to him, ask him about, you know, life-type questions, and then, and then gets around to asking him about the Lord. And his response was, well, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm telling you, you start talking to people who don't know their identity in Christ, their mindset when you start talking about matters of faith or their relationship with God instantly goes to performance. Instantly goes to, am I good enough or am I not good enough? Have I done enough? Have I not done enough? The last preacher told me that I had to please God, make him happy, or he was upset with me and he was going to kill my dog or do something, right? <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but people believe that stuff about God. It's not who God is. God is most clear through who Jesus is. And you say, well, what about all the Old Testament stuff? What about this? And Listen, I'm telling you, God must deal with evil. God must deal with sin. And before Jesus bore our sin and took our judgment, he had to punish, not just punish, but justice had to be executed in the body of the sinner, right? That was, that's just that divine justice law that had to be executed. And, but now under this new covenant, it's not that we get away with sin. You know, it's not that God just closes his eyes and doesn't see it. Some people will say that God doesn't see your sin anymore. Let me tell you, he sees it. And he ain't happy with it. It's just that he's already judged Jesus for it. So he's not going to judge you for it. Now, a healthy response is, man, praise God. Thank you. Thank you that I'm safe through the finished work of Christ. Thank you that my salvation was gained by what Jesus did, not what I do. I'm not going to lose it if I make a mistake. It's, I'm secure in the blood of Christ. That is my salvation, right? And so a lot of people just kind of live within that. And so we read something like this, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. A lot of people, a lot of believers read this and kind of feel like, well, Jesus did that because he had to. Or Jesus did that because he felt sorry for us. And we don't understand just how marvelous of a creature God made us to be to restore our dignity to represent him in the earth. And this, is, this is where I want to go, you know. My guess is most of you guys in this room are believers. Most of you have probably been believers for a pretty long time. And nearly every believer feels like that they haven't done enough for God. Let me just tell you, you haven't. <laughs> 
but that's not how he's basing his relationship on you anyway, right? You'll never be able to do enough. You will die having not completely fulfilled his call on your life. Doesn't that make you feel all warm and fuzzy? <laughs> but the, the thing is, it's like, it's because there's just so much that we could engage in. There's so much that we could give ourselves to do. Even Jesus said, you know, you guys are going to do more than I did. It's like, what? Really? I, when he says, you'll do the things that I did and greater, my, personally, everything that I've studied, he's not talking about more powerful miracles. <clears throat> it's a statement about volume. He was only in ministry for three and a half years. We've been in ministry, you know, how long are we in ministry? Right? So, so the body of Christ at large will just have done more volume-wise than what he did, right? And he did a lot. So... But so the point of today's message, before we get over to the picnic, y'all ready for some fried chicken? <laughs> but the point of today's message is I want to communicate to you in such a way <clears throat> that doesn't just leave you feeling good about your salvation, you know, that doesn't just leave you appreciative of what Jesus did for you. I want to elevate our self-awareness, our self-image, our esteem, our sense of identity, I want to level us up to people who recognize ourselves as kings and priests in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, having been sent into this earth like God sent Jesus to represent him. Amen? I don't, I don't want us to just be happy that we're saved. I don't, I don't want to live a life that I'm just glad that I know the finished work message, Right? that I can read Scripture and properly understand it in terms of what Jesus did for us. I want to live in such a way where I take ownership of this planet. I might say some things in a little bit different way than you're used to hearing, some of you. But God sent Jesus into this earth. Now, I'm not saying we're God. I'm not saying we're going to become gods. I'm not saying, you know... Any elevating us to something that we're not, you know, in Psalm, David asked, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he prophesies the answer back to himself. And he says, you made man a little lower than God. The English translation says angels, but in the original language Hebrew, it's actually the word Elohim, which is the word used for God. Man, in, in the order of creation of beings, it's God, man, angels. Not God, angels, man, humankind. So, you know, angels are servants of mankind. I'm not saying you got to jump out there and start charging them and telling them what to do. You can let God handle that part. But I, I want to I elevate. I want us to think of ourselves as we're kings of this planet, tasked with being priests to the people. <laughs> we're kings and priests. We are kings, rulers over this planet. And that's the way God set it up from the very beginning in Genesis. Gave mankind dominion over this planet. The reason the planet is in the state that it's in, with sin and death and darkness and corruption at every level of authority and power, you know, you look to the world system, and if you get worried and fearful, then you, you don't recognize that you can do something about it. You, you think that you're living in a, well, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. If you live under the weight of the corruption in our leadership structures, 
you don't recognize your authority as an ambassador in the kingdom of God. Amen. Now, mostly the way that we rule and reign is strictly based on the things that Jesus said <clears throat> that we are to do and that we can do. First and foremost, love God and then love people as Christ loved us, right? If you never figure out how to get miracles working, you feel like you're not very good at words of knowledge and wisdom and all the gifts of the Spirit, you can love people. You can love people. You can help people know God's love. You can help people know God's not mad at them. You can help people know God's not holding their sins against them. You can communicate the gospel to them. But if you're living a, a, a normal, let me, not normal, but a typical Christian life, meaning you're kind of confused about who God really is. The typical Christian is a little confused about who God is, doesn't really quite understand why bad things happen, doesn't, you know, kind of looks to circumstances to try to figure out, well, well if that happened, then that must mean God's doing this, and th here's an open door, so that must mean God is saying, go do that. Oh, wait, that didn't work out. Now I'm confused. Or if there's a door closed, you think, okay, well, God's closing that door, so I'm not supposed to go through that door. Man, I'm telling you, that, that's, that's not a very mature way to follow God. Am I being too hard on you today? No. You know, the mindset is we are kings over this planet. We are rulers because God made us just below him, and then gave us this planet to rule and reign on this planet. And so then Jesus comes, right? So we mess it up, and then Jesus comes. And what's the first thing that Jesus says repetitively when he comes into his ministry? Predominantly, the very first thing that he says as he starts to preach and as he starts to communicate who he is and what's going to happen, repent and believe. believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So just so we know we're on the same page here, repent means to change your mind. It does mean to turn away from sin, but repentance is not where at the end of the service you come up here and you cry and you try to convince how God, how sorry you are for your sin, and then you think God responds and then gives you some forgiveness because you finally realized how big of a dirtbag you are. <laughs> you know, I mean, the church kind of a lot of times wants you to feel like a dirtbag. Like, if you, don't, if you feel worse leaving church, man, they did a good job that day. That's stupid. I want you to feel built up. I want you to feel lifted up, encouraged, strengthened, knowing that your God is with you, knowing that all of his promises are yes and amen. But it comes with responsibility, a sense of mature expectation to, to live well within this salvation that you've been given. Amen. I want to see some mature believers. I want to grow up myself, you know. I want to represent God well. And it's not just in the power. I mean, I want that too. But it's, it's in living on this planet. It, for those of you that have kids and, and you see your, your child, you know, they're just the, they have a confidence, right? When you, when you see your child, they're not living in their insecurities. They're not afraid. They're just creatively expressing who they are and they're enjoying life and you see that in your children, that's what God wants to see in you. He wants to see a confidence that you know who he is, right? But this mindset has just kind of 
been rolling around in my heart and mind that we are kings. We are kings in his kingdom. So, so Jesus comes, we mess it up. God before knew it would happen and, and preordained that salvation would be through Christ. You know, everything was made by him, for him, and through him. And he came as a human, limited in all ways like we are, yet without sin, to overcome darkness, to destroy the power of the enemy, to destroy death, and to satisfy divine justice. Like, if you commit a crime and you go to prison and you serve your time and you pay your debt to society, that same model is true spiritually, eternally. But you can't pay that debt. Only Jesus can. But that's only one aspect of salvation. The other aspect is mankind being restored back into that place where we exercise our authority in this planet, right? And we set it the way that it should be. Here's, here's the ideal. The ideal picture is all of us are living, all of us that are believers, are living on this planet just like Jesus did. Now, I realize it's like, well, I'm never going to be there. Well, most of us won't. But that is the potential. That is what's possible. Not that you're going to die for people, not that you're going to become a god, but that you can lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You can be led by the Holy Spirit to a place to have a divine appointment to minister to somebody that changes their life and everybody that they know. That can happen in you. You can be used by God to go into remote, a remote area and, and really interesting, creative miracles happen and then they're left with the gospel and then the kingdom continues to grow there. So, what, so the thing that Jesus did when he came into the earth is he said, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is here now. The kingdom is here now. And I don't have time to go through all the prophecies, but there are some old covenant prophecies that talk about you know, the land of Naphtali and Zebulon would see this great light. And once that great light is in the earth being Jesus, then the kingdom of God would begin to increase in the earth. And to the increase of that kingdom, there would be no end. So we're living now in this time where there's the parable. If you look at Matthew 13, I'm saying a lot because I'm hungry. <laughs> But Matthew uh, 13, Jesus by his disciples are asked, well, what about the end? And he teaches on the parable of the wheat and the tares. Tares are weeds. And tares specifically, what he was referring to, is in a wheat field, there's weeds that looks just like wheat, but it doesn't crop like wheat does. So it's a counterfeit. And they said, Jesus... In the parable, Jesus is teaching about the master, the farmer, and the farmer is God because Jesus explains the parable afterward. And they said, you know, which is the mindset that we question God from. They, so in the parable, <clears throat> the workers of the field come to the, the owner of the field and they say, didn't you sow good soil or didn't you sow good seed? And that's what we do. We question, God, are you really good? Do you really know what you're doing here? Why are all these bad things happening, God? Why would you do this? Why would you allow this? It's the same mindset that most of humanity approaches God with. You know, there's, I, I like to pick on this guy. Um, I'm, we'd probably have a really great conversation if we ever met in person, but there's an astrophysicist, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Remember, 
that usually when the God topic comes up, he, bring, he, he makes the same points nearly every time. So he says, well, when we talk about God, and you look at the traditional version of who God is supposed to be represented to be in terms of the Bible, he, the claim is God is all-powerful and all-knowing. And then he talks about the circumstances of the earth. He talks about the death and the infanticide and the, the decay in the solar system and all the universe, and he points out all these things. And he said, so because of all the darkness and, and human suffering, then either he's not all-knowing or he's not all-good. Because his theory is, so because of the suffering, if he's all-powerful, he could do something about it. But the fact that he's choosing not to do something about it means that he's not all-good. So if he is all-powerful, but he's still allowing all these things to happen, then he's not all-good. And it's like, all right, Mr. Devil, you just keep on accusing God like that. Because that's the Luciferian argument. God's not good. And I'm telling you, the enemy from the beginning has sown discord into our understanding of who God is. God is good and only good. God is good and only good. Why is the world messed up? Why is there sickness and death and all the stuff and tragedy and corruption that we see? Why? That's our fault. We're the ones that allowed sin and death into this earth, not God. Amen? So it's up to us to do something about it, and Jesus showed us the way. Jesus equipped us and empowered us with the same authority that he walked in when he was in this earth. And it's tough. It's, it's tough to think this way because it comes with a sense of responsibility that none of us feel worthy of. Right? And then you start having all these questions. Well, why don't you just go down there and pray for everybody and get them healed in the hospital? You know, so then all of that logic type thing starts reason, coming in. And it's like, you can, you can have the conversation on that level, but what I'm going to do is understand God through who Jesus represented him to be, right? Now, Jesus went into his hometown, and it says he could not do many miracles except heal a few sick folk because those people didn't believe that he had the power to do it. it they limited themselves from, to receive from him. I, I think I've preached 12 different sermons already this morning other than the one I planned, but... But, but that's just the mindset that I feel like I want to pull us up into is recognizing our authority. And, and, and you got to stop minimizing your value. You have to stop minimizing because of your background, your demographic, your failures, where you were born, all this kind of stuff, you know, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, talking about it from a political or socioeconomic perspective. I'm talking about it from a kingdom perspective. We are kings and priests in this earth. And Jesus has sent us into this earth like God sent him into this earth. Now, what does that look like for you? Do you feel like your life is on mission? You know, do you feel like you wake up daily and you have something to put your hand to that is participating with the increase of the kingdom. Now, don't, don't, don't feel like you have to have delusions of grandeur and it's up to you to save a nation. You know, Don't take on that sense of responsibility. I'm talking about more so your day-to-day -day life. 
your situational realities, right? When you encounter people, are you intentional to step into this, walking into this, whatever the situation might be, you're walking into school, you're walking into work, you're walking into the grocery store, you're taking a trip, whatever it might be, are you situationally aware that in this moment you represent God? And I'm not, I'm not saying it's your job to evangelize everybody that you encounter. I'm not saying it's your job to try to get every single person saved. I'm just saying it is your role to be sensitive to be led by the Spirit each and every moment. Yeah. And you're not going to do that if you're weighted down with sin. If you're struggling with the same old sins that you struggled with when you first got saved, it's time to grow up. I mean, it's time to just put that stuff aside. There's grace for that. There's, there's spiritual power from God to work on the inside of you to bring about transformation. You are now under grace, not sin. And un unfortunately, uh, a lot of the Christian world uh, conflates mercy and grace. And so when we say you're under grace, you're not under the law, sin has no more dominion over you, we hear, well, God's overlooking your sin. God's going to be merciful to you when you make a mistake. And that, to me, that, that, but what grace really is, is an empowerment and a divine strength and influence in your heart to strengthen you above the lure of temptation. So to say that you're under grace and not under sin or under the law, that sin has no power over you, Sin has no dominion and power over you because you're under grace, because grace is more powerful than sin. Grace comes with, it's like grace is genetically designed to get in you and grow and change you into the type of being that doesn't, that doesn't uh, experience temptation. Grace doing a work in you changes your desires. Grace is power. Grace is strength. When you're facing temptation, you know, like Paul, Paul prayed, I forget exactly where it's at, uh, that this thorn be removed. Where is that? Sam, can you think of that? Yeah, Paul prayed, remove this thorn. Thorn. All right, we're not having a conversation here now. <laughs> anyway, Paul prayed three times for God to remove the thorn from his flesh, right? right? Now, probably what he was talking about was somebody, y'all yell it out if you find it. Sam said 2 Corinthians 12. Okay. So Paul prays, God remove this thorn from my flesh. And, and what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you. Most of Christianity interprets my grace as, is sufficient for you as no. Paul, God, please, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? My grace is sufficient for you. What's he saying? What he's saying is my power in you is sufficient. You don't need me to come down out of heaven to do this thing. What you need is to connect to my power on the inside of you to overcome this thing. Now, whether the thorn was a disease or people, 
most likely it was the people that were persecuting him, following him around and trying to undo what he was building, you know. He'd go in and he'd establish a great understanding of the work, which I had this thought. Boy, I'm just really spraying it. But um, have, you, have you ever questioned why Paul? Or like we have the Gospels, right? And there's a, there's a big deconstruction movement where people are kind of really analyzing Scripture and they're digging into the origins of the Bible and the, and the canon, which is the book that we have. The 66 books that we have is, is called the canon. And there's a lot of scrutiny over that, looking at, well, where did we get it? And that had something to do with the Catholic Church and this and the Council of Nicaea. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of attempt to undermine the um, inerrancy of the collection of the library that we have that we call the Bible. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, talk out there to try to delegitimize Scripture, right? And one of the things is going after Paul, going after Paul's understanding. It's like, well, he didn't walk with Jesus, and the disciples, even some of them, struggled with what he wrote. But this is a study that I've started to do recently, and um, I, it, it'll, it may help you in your study. And, and Sam, this may be within classic theology. I, I'm not a classically trained theologian. I kind of just stumble upon things in my own study. But the conclusions, this, this is the point. This statement is the point. The conclusions that Paul came to about faith righteousness and how he taught to such a depth, even beyond what the disciples taught, the, the way that he came to the conclusions was because he was a scholar in Old Testament Scripture. So he so well knew the prophecies, the Psalms, the Proverbs. He so well knew God's Word that when it came time for him to write letters, everything that he wrote was a manifestation and a fulfillment of something that had been prophesied in Scripture before that. But he gave the finished work insight so that we would understand the fulfillment of it that wasn't understand before Jesus came. So, you know, you know when it says that after the resurrection, that Jesus on the road um, came, huh? Emmaus, yeah. Came and, and after the resurrection, came and, and walked with his disciples, and they didn't recognize him. But what it says that he basically explained to them everything about the Messiah from the law, the prophets, and Psalms. Luke chapter 24. <laughs> he said Luke 24. By the way, if you're visiting, if you're new here, we're a very casual bunch, and we love to pick on Sam back there. So <laughs> It's just a thing. But um, thank you. That's true. That's right. Yes. Anyway, I think a lot of what we get from Paul is what Jesus would have explained to them in that. Because I've thought a lot about it. It's like, man, here's this lost sermon. Here's these, this secret sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples. We'll never know what that was. I'm not so sure that that's true. I think Paul had a lot of the same insight in his own language was telling, tells us 
what Jesus was revealing to them about the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And it's pretty powerful. We don't, we're not left in the dark. So, you know, Paul didn't just get independent revelation about Jesus. Everything he wrote is anchored back into Old Testament Scripture, Old Covenant knowledge and understanding about God and the prophecies about Jesus. It's, and it's a really powerful study to do, especially when you go into Hebrews. All right, let's jump back. I just, want us to, I just want us to walk around with the sense of, you know, God doesn't feel sorry for me. God's not holding my sins against me. I'm not the problem child in the family of God. We're not just kind of some worms subservient to this all-powerful, mighty God. You know, we're not just barely getting in by the skin of our teeth. We're not just sinners saved by grace. You know, we're not just a bunch of people that God had to save because he's God. No, we are dignified, full of glory and honor creatures made in the image of God. Like if we could get a picture of what kind of beings we actually are, man, then you, you might run the risk that Lucifer did in, when he reasoned by the brightness of his own glory and thought, well, I can ascend above the throne of God. He was such a magnificent creature that when in ill logic thought that he could be more glorious than God because he had a lot to look at and think, man, I'm pretty, I'm something. You know, so I, I want us to think of ourselves in proper order of the kind of creatures and beings that we are. Not just so that you can sit and look in the mirror and go, well, I'm awesome. <laughs> but because there is a dark, broken, hurting world out there yeah. that people that don't know the gospel, yeah. people that don't know who Jesus is. I mean, there's people that, heard about, that have heard about him, but they've never really heard the gospel. They've never really heard that Jesus changes you that he doesn't just open the door to heaven and, like, give you a ticket. He moves, he takes up residence on the inside of you. He takes out that root of sin, and he puts his spirit in there, and he gives you a new heart. And from then on, you, you follow God from the heart. Most people still believe that they have a wicked heart because that's Old Testament. Don't know and don't realize that God changed you at your core to be this powerful being accepted by God, not just accepted by God, but empowered by God. God trusts you with the message of his kingdom. I'll say this. God trusts you to the degree that he trusted Jesus to go on mission. It's time to elevate our self-image. It's time to elevate what we think about ourselves. Because we walk around in this false humility, not really realizing the kind of being that God has made us to be. Wow. Amen? Amen. Double amen. So I want to read a couple of scriptures before we close, just to show you the heart of Jesus towards you, and then just look at, you know, these are passages that I've read the past couple of weeks, but I just want to reframe it in the idea of living on mission, living, you know, man, sometimes when I preach, I feel like I can hear thoughts, and it's like, I, I get it. I get it that you're busy, 
I get it that you have your job and you feel like you don't have time. I get it that you're sick, you're in debt, world circumstances are huge and big, you feel like you're not smart enough. I get that. I get that you feel like that you've been a Christian this long, you should be further down the road. I, I get that. God sees that. But that's not how he's looking at you. Those are your own excuses. God's not looking at that stuff. Those are your own excuses. And it's not, that you, it's not that you have to grieve all the time that you feel like that you've lost. You, you don't have to do that. Today, his mercies are new. Today, you can step into. So how do you do that? How do you let it go? How do you move on? How do you live on mission? How do you elevate your sense of self-worth so that it matches what God would say about you? I'm not saying make up something that God's not saying about you. How do you do that? How do, how do you represent God in this earth? How do you live in such a way where you're, 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 you're participating with the Holy Spirit who is advancing and increasing his kingdom? How do you do that? And I'll say there's probably lots of ways, but I think mostly it's couched in love. I think it's couched in our love for one another, and it's couched in our unity amongst each other toward the world. It's, it's pretty simple. And so when you, if you want to move in the power, have a sense of love and admiration and compassion for people. So let me just show you. Let me read a few of these passages here. This is Matthew 15, 29. And these are being the New King James today. So this is Jesus. Um, <clears throat> and this is um, right after he healed a bunch of people. They've been out healing, you know, miracle. This is miracle day, healing thousands of people. And uh, it's toward the end of the day. And this is right before the feeding of the multitude. But there's this moment in between where you see the heart of God. And I covered these passages on, on Wednesday night this past week, but I think it really fits well here too. So Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain. Sydney, will you follow me along to the next one? Uh, and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they... They laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. <clears throat> Praise God. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Leave it, leave it on that slide for just a second. They glorified the God of Israel. All right, now, what happens next might change your view of the heart of Jesus for you. Because this is you as well. Essentially, you've gone to him for healing. You've gone to him for a touch. You've gone to him out of your lack and your need, right? And so you might think that's it. The, the exchange is over. You're, you're healed. Now move on. But what does he do? This is his heart toward us. The, next, the very next verse. Next verse, please. So now Jesus called his disciples to himself, now he instigates this, and listen to what he says. He says, I have compassion. Say compassion. compassion. I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days. Now he's the one that's done all the work. He's done all the preaching. He's done all the healing. But yet he still has compassion. He still cares for these people. He still wants to help them and take care of them. He says, because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. 
Now, to me, that's deeply moving. That's the heart of God towards you. He's concerned about you. He doesn't want you to be weak. He doesn't want you to be hungry. He doesn't want you to journey and potentially faint. He wants to meet the, base, the most basic of need here in this situation. Now, I don't know if when you read Scripture, you read those kind of lines and it becomes personal from God towards you, but I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to look for God's heart towards you in situations like this. He had compassion on them. And so we talked about this Wednesday, and it's the, the word compassion there. He was moved with compassion. <laughs> you know where it's going, some of y'all that were here. But so, so the Greek word here for moved with compassion is splachnizomai. It's like the most German-sounding Greek word ever. Splachnizomai. All right, let's say it. One, two, three. Splachnizomai. You didn't say it. You're in trouble. <laughs> I'm kidding. Splachnizomai. So that, the definition of that word is, here, it is to be moved as to one's bowels. Hence, to be moved with compassion. Have compassion, uh, have compassion in parentheses, for the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. Now, it's kind of crass, but have you ever thought your bowels were going to move before you could get to where you needed to be? And it evoked extreme action. You're willing to break every law. You don't care how dangerous you're driving. You got to get to the potty. Splachnizomai. Because you don't want to splachnizomai in your car, right? It was such urgency. That's the word used describing the kind of compassion that moved him to provide for people. Like he had such a deep sense of love for people that he could not not take action. Are you with me? Yeah. Now it's funny, we laugh. And it's kind of gross, and now, now you're trying to sort through the pictures and all that, try to get it back spiritual again. I understand that. You know, it's, we're humans. But, but, but it, it, it paints a picture. When's the last time you were moved with compassion and love toward somebody that you had to take action to show that love toward them? You can. We can live with such a deep sense of respect and honor and love toward people that it moves us. And I would say this, if you're not, if the, how many of you want to move in the power of the Spirit? You want to see the gifts of the Spirit displayed through your life. I'm telling you, if you will let love be that motivation that moves you, I feel like we will see 
much more effective results. Because Jesus said, I've given you the power that I had. You have the same thing. You can do the same things that I do. But do we have the same heart toward people that he has? Do you look at somebody and you just, you just have such empathy for them? Not sympathy. You're not feeling sorry for them. But you look at them and you just instantly, boom, God loves this person. God deeply values this person. I don't care where you sit in church. I don't care if you go to church or not. Well, that was like a weird cross thing. We're Catholic now. I don't care how badly. So, all right, so, so then I'm gonna, this is the last passage, and this is what I want to frame it in. This is Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Let's read this, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Um, do you, yeah, there we go. So you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You can go click through. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, with such a sense of compassion towards your enemy. Now, who's your enemy? Anybody that did something bad to you. Is it the mirror? Is your enemy the mirror? Maybe you're your own worst critic. Maybe it's your spouse, your kids, your parents, your boss, that kid in fourth grade that embarrassed you. Seriously. Is it whoever's president? Is it whoever voted for who's currently president? <laughs> There's anger. And, and people are defining those kinds of people as enemies. Is it transgender people who are stealing your favorite beer? If you don't know, then you're just good for you. That's really, <laughs> seriously, good for you. What is it? You know what I mean? And so I'm not saying we, we overlook and make compromises and concessions and pervert and bend the justice and the law and the righteousness of God. I'm not saying we do that. But your enemy, really? That's your enemy? So what does he say? What I say, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. When's the last time you did that? I know none of you have anybody that hates you. Nobody laughed, so you got some people that hate you. Think about it, though. So, again, we're not just worms barely getting saved by the skin of our teeth because God feels sorry for us. We are dignified, full of honor, and glorious creatures fully equipped to represent God in this planet. And this is how, this is the way of the kingdom. When Jesus came into the earth and said, repent and believe the gospel, repent, change the way that you think and believe the good news, because the kingdom is here. When Jesus starts describing the order, so everything that Jesus taught was about his kingdom. We splinter it up into moral lessons and behavioral suggestions, but really he's describing his kingdom. That's what he, he was a kingdom preacher. Everything he taught had to do with his kingdom. So when he does his big sermon, the big sermon on the mountain, the early parts of Matthew, he's not really just addressing behavior. He's addressing what life is like in his kingdom and how we are to properly live within our kingship within his kingdom. 
And he says, you know, in my kingdom, it's the, the ones that are successful in life are made low, and those who struggle are exalted. The, the, the ones that have the most success are the ones that are to come and undergird and be the greatest servants. The people who are broken and bruised, those are the ones that inherit everything that I have. Right? He like reverses a lot of what the world system is. In life in his kingdom, it's all about honor and respect and love. So he's describing how to live as a kingdom citizen not a legalistic expectation on you that determines whether or not you're saved. You're saved because the blood of Christ has been shed and you believe in that and you've been made new. You're a new creature, forever changed. Amen? So now this is how we live, not because of a law, but because this is, this is the culture of the kingdom. This is the, the order of the kingdom. It's who we are. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. When's the last time you prayed for your enemy? Uh, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Isn't that powerful? Do you see God as your Father? That's a huge revelation to some people. Your Father in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's equal opportunity, right? For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors, ugh. We don't really understand that in our culture. We kind of do, but, you know. Yeah. Is that the last one? Uh, last verse, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you read that and you think God expects me to be perfect in behavior, then you will always live below the potential that you could live within. But if you look at this and you realize God himself has perfected me. He's the author and perfecter of my faith. He's the one that has completed me. He's the one that has shared his authority with me. What he's talking about is living within the reality of who you actually are. Now, so for Jesus, he was teaching this before the opportunity to be born again and made new creatures. So he was using the law to expose to people, you can't be qualified through the law in and of yourself. And then Paul comes in and further explains, uh, you know, the, the new creation reality. My wife's texting me saying, hurry up. Uh, but... Man, go, go back to pray for your enemies because this is what I want to walk out of here with. So, so um, verse 44, you put up verse 44. I'm telling you, if we as the body of Christ begin to quit thinking of ourselves as worms that God feels sorry for and kind of has a little bit of disdain for, like God's, you know, does that make sense to you? Because a lot of people feel that way. And you start looking at God as your father, and you start looking at yourself as somebody that has dignity and honor and worth in the kingdom of God. You have direct access into the presence of God. You are the temple of the living God. 
Like God used to live, or the, his presence would come down into a tabernacle or later into a stone structure temple in gold through blood. But now God's presence is in you. You, listen to this, you are the living ark of the covenant. I think our microphone, I don't think it's the battery. It's just, I think we need to replace this cable. The battery goes. <laughs> this is more crackle. This is the picture that you have to have about yourself. The presence of the living God is in you. Just like the presence of God. If, if you're unfamiliar with the stories, God singled out Abraham, promised to him that his lineage would be uh, his purchased, peculiar, holy people that he would reveal himself in the earth through. That was the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. And God made covenant with them, and his presence from heaven would dwell among them. And there was an ark, which is a box, essentially, with angels on it. Inside it had the Ten Commandments and Moses' rod and some manna, which was supernatural food he fed them for 40 years in the desert with. His presence would rest upon that, and they would be blessed because they'd carry the box around, the ark, and his presence would be a blessing around them. And whoever he... I'm gonna, let me change this microphone here. Those who bless you are blessed. Those who curse you, I will curse. Now, because the curse has been fully paid for in Christ now, we walk around and God is seeking to bless because he's good and only good, and the justice side has already been satisfied in Christ. But that presence, if you touched that box wrong, wrongly, was it wrongly? I don't know. But the presence dwelt on that because you were unholy and, un, and unjust and sinful, you'd die. If you went into the presence the wrong way, the priests, if they didn't clean themselves, sanctify themselves properly, that presence would kill you. You can't exist. You can't cohabitate in that presence. That presence, that holy, just, eternal presence lives on the inside of you. You are the temple of the living God in this earth. You now don't go down to the temple and offer sacrifice to worship. You worship in spirit because your spirit's directly connected to him. You have direct spirit-to-spirit -spirit access, relationship with God. We don't really know the magnificence of the type of creatures that we are. Jesus prayed at the end of his life, right before he was going to be arrested. I pray, he says, I pray, I finished the work that you gave me to do. I manifested your name. I'm ready to take back the glory that I had. This is John chapter 17, if you want to go read it. I'm ready to take back the glory that I had with you before I came. And I give them the same glory you gave me. You are a glorious, sin defines you, Amen. define you. And that's challenging because that's where repentance needs to happen. We need to quit believing that we're these lowly creatures and move in love toward people, right? That's our task. That's our responsibility. If you want to represent God, be, cultivate a sense of compassion for people. 
Now, there's a few ways you can do it practically. On Wednesday night, we did an exercise. If you want to go back and watch that exercise, we had a couple of volunteers and it went really well, but uh, it's on video. This past week, every night, we were uh, participating in something called the Overflow Conference. Lots of good messages on there. My message was Wednesday night. Um, you can go watch the activation there. We walked through some practical stuff at overflowconference.info. We'll send out an email this week to make sure everybody has links. But here's a very, very simple thing that you can do. Other than praying for your enemies, all, uh, everything that this passage outlines, outlines right here, and practice it with your spouse, practice it with the people that are in your home, practice it with the people that you know, but just get in front of people, and when you're having conversations with them and you look at them, do you see them? Are you just thinking about what's going on in your mind, or do you actually see this person? To the point where you, you're not thinking about yourself, but you have a sense like this respect rises up for this person. This sense of honor and value rises up for this person. There's a connection that you have that's heart to heart with this person. You look at them. And if there's a wrong between the two of you, it's not what's between you. You're looking at them and you're seeing the glory of God inside of them. You're seeing the gold on the inside of them. You're seeing the presence of God on the inside of them if they're a believer. If not, you still see the value that is on them. Now, if we as believers, when we're out in public or when we're around or whatever we're doing, if we intentionally lay aside our judgments, quit reinforcing the reasons that this person shouldn't be loved or whatever is going on in your mind toward people, when you look at people, begin to make it a practice that you actually connect with this person. You see them. And it's kind of uncomfortable, especially if you have insecurities or you struggle with connection. Man, I'm telling you, it starts there. It starts with just seeing the person. And then you make the decision, I'm going to feel love for this person. I'm going to intentionally cultivate compassion. To the point where my inner state changes and I feel a sense of, man, I just start to, care about this person. I start to wonder if they're okay. You know, I start to think about, man, I want the best for this person. I want this person to know God's love for them. I want this person to have such a deep sense of meaning, fulfillment, and purpose in this life. Whoever it is that I'm speaking to, man, I, I really hope that they know God's love for them. And then the spirit starts to move and the power rides on the wave of love. And then you might get a word of knowledge. Then you might get a scripture for somebody. You might be moved to pray for that person. But it starts with love. Cultivate compassion. Amen? Amen. Cultivate compassion. Especially with your enemy. Especially for those who've hurt you. Because it'll set you free. If some of you are carrying hurt around because somebody, I mean, even if you are legitimately victimized and something unjust happened to you, something horrifically actually happened to you, you're not just claiming victimhood, but you are actually victimized. Your freedom is in your compassion for that person. Your freedom is in your ability to see 
God's value for that person. And it's not that you're giving them permission. It's not that what they did was okay or you're just letting it slide. You're just willing to not let it define you or them, and you're willing to then be the agent of love in that person's life. Man, I'm telling you, if the body of Christ could begin to lead with love, we would see people come to believe that God sent Jesus for them too. I'm not going to read it, but in the rest of John 17, when Jesus is praying and he says, I pray that they know that they're one with each other, and I pray that they know that they're as one with each other as you are with me and I am with them, and we will come and make our abode in them, our unity in each other. That's our strategy. Unity is our strategy and love is our power. I'm just, I'm just convinced of it. I'm just convinced. But it takes getting out of the muck and mire and who you think that you are and then intentionally moving in love toward people. Amen? All right, let's stand up if you would. Keep your attention on him. Jesus, we trust you. We love you. We thank you. Now, if it's your... If you're taking the responsibility to be an agent of love in God's kingdom, you can close your eyes if you want to. You can bow your head if you want to. You don't have to. But if it's your intent, you, you are intentionally going to walk out of here and see people to cultivate, to cultivate compassion for people so that God will use you in their life. If that's you, just lift up your hand. Raise up your hand. Yeah. Father, you see our hands. You see our hearts. You see our desire to represent you. We just want people to know how good that you are. We want people to know what Jesus did for them. And we carry your presence to help them have an encounter with you. Because oftentimes, we're the only Jesus that people are going to see. Out of our mouths may be the only time people get an opportunity to hear the gospel. So we're willing to take that responsibility, Lord. We will walk and lead in love and cultivate compassion toward people. You can put your hands down. If you're in this room today and you've never said yes to Jesus, you're not sure if you're saved and you want to make that confession of faith today, or if you're watching online, just lift up your hand. You want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today. If there's any, anybody's hands in the room today, you yeah. know. Well, praise God. Praise